0: Please turn with me to 1st Peter chapter 3, 1st Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. 1st Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. I remind you, this is God's holy, inerrant and infallible word. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your blessing upon the reading and preaching of the word. We also would be remiss if we didn't pray for Linda and ask, Lord, that you would be with her as she undergoes surgery to replace her knee tomorrow. Lord, have mercy. Lord, cause her to heal well. Keep her from infection, give wisdom to the doctors, and bless their work. We ask also for your provision for those who are attempting to close out semesters and finish their studying and pass tests and, uh, and, and find work and all those things, Lord. We ask that you would provide and sustain. We ask also for those who are traveling tomorrow. Lord, be with them. Bring them back safely again into this body. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, the Apostle Peter has been speaking uh, concerning the Christian life. And he has been asserting uh, how the Christian life is to be ordered out in, in accord with one's doctrinal understanding. And, of course, he has been making doctrinal exhortations. And he has been preaching, if you will, in chapter 1 verse 1 all the way to chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, and he has summarized that preaching in verses 11 and 12. You must turn away evil and do, uh, pardon me, wrong uh, section, uh, Two verses 11 and 12 where he has said, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. It's what we just heard about a, just a few moments ago. Sergey was sharing for it with us that as they do good deeds, as they do good works, they hope ultimately to glorify God and to lead to the sanctification and growth and the spiritual nurture of those who receive what they do. And so Peter is essentially arguing for that. The heart of it all is that we are to walk in such a way that we would glorify God in all that we do and do, uh, shut up those who are foolish in their assumptions, uh, and shut up uh, those who would contend against Christianity, not them but their complaints, uh, and also that we would provide a ready answer for the hope that we have. So he's reached a section in chapter 3 where he says, to sum up, now maybe in your translation it says, now finally, uh, and that's a signal word, that's a signal word for pastors, I was in a, a, a. I was listening to a sermon this last week, uh, where a pastor said, "Now, finally," but then he was lying because about five minutes later he said, "And finally, again." Now, it, that sometimes pastors will do that uh, to sum up, or my last point is, and then they'll say, "Well, I, I have another point." Um, well, that's what Peter is doing, but he's faithful to do it. He's not reached the end. Of this passage, like a pastor who reaches the end of his sermon, says, "Now, finally, uh, Peter's not doing that. Rather, rather, what he's saying is to sum up. And of course, in, in my passage uh, or in my translation, it says to sum up. It's it's now. Let me sum up what I've just said. Well, let me conclude. Let me summarize uh, everything that I've just said. It's not a formula for r- arriving at the end." It's rather a a word that signals a summary. And so these are conclusive comments, inclusive comments for everyone. This is for all who are listening. He's just uh, spoken to slaves. He's spoken to women or wives. He's spoken to husbands. He's spoken to citizens, denizens of a given government. Uh, And now he says, finally, or to sum up, or for everyone that's here or listening to my epistle, uh, and so he, what he says, he has to say, is important. Now, there's a purpose in his speaking. There's a purpose in what he has been exhorting. And that purpose is simply this. Uh, he wants our lives, he wants the lives of those who read this epistle, who hear it even to today, to recognize that and to equip us with lives that preach the gospel. It's exactly what was stated earlier by Sergei. As we go out, as we hand out food to those who are in need, to refugees, we hope to ultimately bear fruit for the gospel in the lives of people who receive what we do. And so as Christians, that's essential uh, to the Christian life. And I I love that that was affirmed in that example this morning. It's something that all of us should take very, very seriously, that even in the midst of conflict and warfare, we are called still as believers to glorify God in the midst of our suffering and difficulty, and that our lives ought to preach to show the gospel in some way. We are to live out the doctrine that we believe. What you believe frames your life. What you believe frames your conduct. And so if if your beliefs do not in some way inform your conduct, then your belief is worthless. James tells us that. James clarifies that. If, if your doctrinal commitments are not bearing fruit with a life lived out uh, that, 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 that clarifies, that, that shows, that bears fruit of justification, uh, then in fact perhaps we have not experienced justification um, it's our faith, or what we say that we believe, is worthless. Uh, James makes that clear: faith without works is dead. You show me your faith; I'll show you. I'll show you a life that displays God's justifying work in fruit bearing. You see, because the truth is that bearing fruit for God is not is not bound up in our own efforts or our own abilities or our own. Ability somehow to bear fruit, that somehow we can squeeze with all our might and bear fruit and popping it out in some way. But no, rather, God says that I will in in his declarations concerning regeneration from the Old Testament all the way to the new. He declares that God that he will justify us according to his grace and he will cause us to walk forth and bear fruit. So it's only our privilege to, to bear that fruit. It is his to produce it the fruitfulness of a believing life is something which God the Holy Spirit is at work proclaiming declaring clarifying causing to grow and if in fact we don't bear fruit if 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 what we say that we believe does not in any way bear upon our lives then in fact we we are not likely just if we are likely to not be justified and so as believers we should come to the conviction that This is what Peter commands. The Word of God is commanding certain behaviors of of a Christian living in various contexts, living in the world. We are to be living in specific ways. And, And so the Apostle Peter helps us and he shows us how to live within the community. And he'll show us how to live in the face of evil. And then he's going to thirdly, finally, show us how to live before the very face of God. Firstly, living within the community. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Sounds easy, doesn't it? Not so much. Peter provides a description of the life that we must live within the Christian community, and all of these traits are of a very social nature. Uh, it, it, It necessitates that we are living in community with one another. For those who say, well, I have no use for the church. I'm not interested in the church. The church holds no bearing on my life. It's it's me and it's Jesus. We're like this. I'm close. I don't need the church or the trappings of religion. Well, to be quite frank, scripture over and over and over and over again shows and denies that there is any such thing as a solitary Christian living outside of community. It's not possible. You say, "Well, I'm doing just fine." Well, you are malformed in the sense that you you're not showing harmonious uh, ability to live in communion together. You're not sympathizing. You're not sympathizing with fellow believers in the covenant context. Uh, how are you expressing your brotherly love while you're uh, while you're enjoying this private expression of Christian religion? How do you display? How do you make use of being kind-hearted? and walking in humility with fellow brothers in, in community before God. It's not possible. Throughout Scripture, we never observe any picture of a solitary Christian. If we do, they are united in some way in vital communion to the church. Always. Always. Even those who are acting independently or upon their own, uh, such as Paul. Uh, Paul submitted to and was called by the church, commissioned for the work that he engaged in. Wherever he went, what did he do? He connected immediately to the church. If there was no church, he connected to a community of believing people. And then he helped them form a church every single time. He writes every single epistle. So does Paul. So does James. All of them write who? To who? To individuals? No. To the church. Jesus writes seven letters to to the seven churches and speaks through John in the island of Patmos. Who does he speak to? Individuals? To the church. Christ died. For whom? The church. Who did he come to save? Who did he come to sanctify? The church. Where did, where did he pr- promise to be present? With the church, where two or three are gathered. And in my name. <clears throat> and so Peter is saying: look, this is these are social. These are social traits to be wrought within the social uh, framework of the believing community of God's people, the church. And they include uh, cognitive things, uh, things which flow from our mind, things that are an act of the will, but also they involve emotional connection, and also right within the center is love, Christian love. I don't believe I've ever seen anywhere in Scripture where there is this command to love oneself. I don't see that anywhere. But I do see a constant refrain to love one another. So, in other words, we're to love an identifiable body of believing people. And how can we do that unless the church is clearly identified and known within the pages of Scripture, and known here within any given community, as those who have confessed their faith publicly before the body of God's people and submitted to its leadership as unto the Lord. So let's look at these traits. These are traits that ought to be a clear mark of Christian community. And it's, it's they're what we're called to. Have a, a, a verbal and physical lifelong commitment to to practice. First is to be harmonious. Of uh, to to be harmonious. Now, some of us are, are rather dissonant. Uh, we don't like to be harmonious. We like to go our own way. We like to be contrarians. Uh, but the Bible is clearly in in has a priority for being harmonious, meaning. To be of one mind, to believe the same truth, to make a concerted effort not to be opposed to each other or to always hold the view that's opposite of everyone else. Uh, we all love to be different. We all love to go our own way. Uh, we hear in society that we are to be rebellious, to, re- 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 to re- uh, revolt against uh, against conformity. And yet, ultimately, society just winds up conforming to its own tyranny. But here, within the church, we are commanded in submission to Jesus Christ because of our love for Jesus Christ, because of our love for one another. We are to be harmonious. In other words, not not be uh, not not to to not be so conformed that we are. Uh, this this does not mean that we are. Uh, in other words, uh, thinking in such a way that uh, we don't have independent thought. It doesn't mean that we can't have. Our own set of, of intellectual commitments or that we can think and process in a different way than everyone else. It doesn't mean that somehow we must become uh, or submit to some idea of a thought police system where we only ever think the way that everyone else does. No. But rather that we would think uh, or that we would think in such a way that we would make a concerted effort uh, mutually to be on the page, same page together that we would be cons- that we would be consistent with each other. It's not un- uniformity of thought, but that we would have the same basic theological commitments to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, to hold the same core theological commitments and to be one with one another. There was recently an individual who attended Grace and their thoughts were of their own and so they they had their own theological commitments Uh, making no effort whatsoever to uh, be of one mind. Even when I would get together on a regular basis and we would discuss things theologically, opening the Bible together, uh, this person still refused to accept uh, and had no spirit of uh, desire for harmonious thinking, uh, intending that uh, he would ultimately seek to take the theology of the church as his own, uh, that he would submit to the word of God and see perhaps to at least be open to that there is another theological way to take this given passage or another. So what it means is that we should cast aside and reject our worldly categorizations, our fractionalizing, our classification, our divisions, and be of one mind with one another. Now, that that seems impossible given our diversity. We are a diverse people. We are male. We are female. We are not the same. We come from all walks of life. We are at all varying uh, or economic levels. Uh, our ethnicity is different. All of us. I'm French-Canadian. I don't think there's a French-Canadian in the house. Not that that matters to me. It doesn't. I was born and raised in America. That's wonderful. Good, thank God for that. You may be born and raised somewhere else, but but the, 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 the but 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 the blessing is that in our diversity there is to be a of one mind, a, a harmonious way in which we would all gather collectively together, and and unite over clear theological truth, and we would hold to the same ideas. The world is currently telling us that we must divide over who we are. That no one can in any way sympathize with you, come to understand you, love you. In other words, all the rest of these uh, character traits that no one could ever know you as you truly are unless they, in fact, provide you reparations or uh, unless you're exalted in your difference, unless society makes it a, a legal action perhaps even a constitutional uh, obligation uh, to, in fact, uh, affirm uh, and clarify your difference. The Bible, in fact, speaks against that and says, well, no, be of one mind. Be harmonious. In other words, it means that all of us must set aside... All of us must leave behind all those things that are common to humanity, that are sinful in nature. that call us to to clarify and to emphasize our differences. The Bible says, no, don't emphasize those differences. Rather, emphasize your unity together in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Emphasize your unity in your commonality as sinners. Your unity in your commonality of your need of salvation in Jesus Christ and affirm that each of you, all of you, are saved by grace through faith, and are now one in the community of God's people. So we are to be harmonious with one another. Even having a priority such that it is at work visibly in our lives, that even when we find ourselves to be a different of a different mindset over a given issue, that we would seek to be understanding about our differences, and even being willing humbly to adopt another's perspective, because God commands us to be harmonious. Sympatheia is another one. It's it's it. That's exactly the Greek word. It means to suffer with. It means to suffer with. And we can see that in some way. So what it means is when when Sergei comes and shares with us a summary of what he's going back to and how the warfare that he and his wife have endured. There's separation that has been heartbreaking. It means that we should groan within ourselves and and actively make some effort to relieve that suffering in some way by being willing to pray for them, by being willing to, to ask them what they need, by being willing to put money, as this church has done, as you have done, behind that and to say, here, take Take and serve. Take and use it for the kingdom of God. Our small church has given, I think, about 1,500 or so, and I think that's an extraordinary work of grace that God has enabled us to be a part of. But there are other ways that we can suffer. It, it, it's, it means to genuinely have pity. It, it means, Roman, like Romans 12, verse 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. It means here is this person. Here is so and so on Sunday morning, and in walks in walks Laura, and 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 she's weeping. She's weeping over a, a hard and difficult situation in her life. Perhaps something that's going on in her family, and it means that you, as a godly woman or a godly friend or male, uh, comes alongside and says, "I am going to sit down with you and weep with you. I am so burdened by what you are burdened with. I am saddened by what you are saddened with, and by." Dr. Brene Brown has a, a, a lovely little cartoon that's on YouTube, and she, it, it, it's born out of a, uh, a, a symposium that she led, and it talks about the idea of, of sympathy and, and beyond. Um, and she says basically that it's perspective-taking, that you take another person who is suffering, who is hurting, you take their perspective, and, and so you stay out of judgment, and she says, you know, this is not easy considering how much we enjoy this. Uh, we love that, don't we? We we will often be judgmental. Someone says, uh, my children are not walking with the Lord. Uh, I'm, I'm grieved over this. Will we begin to be judgmental in our heart perhaps and say, well, I wonder if they did what I did. And I wonder if they did all the things perfectly that they ought to have done. I wonder if they've been as faithful as they should be and if they've obeyed God's commandments. Well, uh, that is important at the same time. God is sovereign and God is pleased to save all those who are elect unto great under his grace. He is pleased to work even beyond our own weaknesses. There is no such thing as a perfect Christian parent. Amen. But staying out of judgment, also recognizing emotion and then communicating that even feeling with people. And she says, What that means is that we need to connect within myself. I need to connect within myself with that feeling that I'm I'm observing in the other person. Typically, we enter into judgment or we'll say, Let me tell you about my experience of that feeling. That's not listening. That's not listening. That's the worst possible way that we could react. It's the last thing we want to hear. When we're hurting, and we want to talk about our situation. We need encouragement and help and prayer. The last thing we want to hear about or be obligated to do is to say, uh, to, to, to from ourselves have to sympathize with the other person as they, they share with us how they were suffering and it all becomes about them. Perspective taking. Connecting within myself with that feeling but saying nothing about myself. Rather, sharing their sorrow," she said. This at the end of her discussion. Rarely does a response, in other words, something I'm saying, well, gee whiz, uh, surely uh, uh, everything's going to be all right, or or at least uh, your situation isn't as bad as it could be. Uh, rather than making a response, rarely does a response make something better. What makes something better is connection, and I, I agree, and I think that's affirmed in the Word of God. Uh, So we are to be harmonious and we are to be sympathetic. In other words, to make a connection with people who are suffering. And then love as a brother, brotherly love. Uh, Simple recognition, I think, helps us here. Uh, Maybe I have a hard time loving my Christian brothers and sisters, but let me me step back. Let's all step back for a second and simply recognize one basic fact. Everyone you see around you this morning, on this Sunday morning, even if they're only temporarily here, they are your brothers. They are your sisters. And they are more f- profoundly linked to you than your actual physical blood, body, uh, or blood uh, brothers and sisters. Because they are united to Jesus Christ, and you are united with them as well. Now, culture equates love with eroticism and physical affection. So physical acts always equal love. But but with Christ, it's Christ says that love is the truest sign of our Christian faith. And it's not physical per se. Mark 12 says you, you're obligated to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And he says that the second of the two great laws is like that. Love your neighbor as yourself. In John 13, verse 34b and 35, he says, As I have loved you, so also you must love one another. In other words, Jesus gave up his life for us. He loved us so much that he gave himself and died even in a death upon the cross. And so as he gave himself for those who did not love Him. He calls us to love those within the body of Christ. And then as we do that, He says, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The intention of Christ is that everyone would know that you are a Christian. Maybe you like hiding under the radar and you don't really want to invite persecution. You really don't want people to To know, you'd rather not say, you you believe that religious practice is private. Faith is a private matter of the soul. No, it's not. It's really not. God has caused faith to well up within you. He has created and nurtured and encouraged that faith, granting you belief so that you would be publicly marked as a believer. So that your life can preach the gospel. So that your conduct can glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that your love of other people will display to others that you are, in fact, a Christian. Our lives are so to display that we are Christians that it's unmistakable. No one, no one could, could, could miss it. Do our lives show such a radical love? Do our lives show such a radical love commitment to one another? If somebody looks at your life, could they say, that person is such a loving person, they must be a Christian. That's the intention. That's the command of scripture. That's what God intends for your life and for mine. That as we are harmonious and sympathetic and we practice brotherly love and kind heartedness and humility and spirit that someone would say, you got to be a Christian. Am I right? oftentimes we run into this we watch a movie or we watch a show I like to watch a couple of things on YouTube that are, are fun uh, one is a, a show of a vegetable farmer uh, and 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 another is is a cattle farmer I love farming I adore farming it's not boring to me at all. I love tractors uh, I love soil i love i love manure uh, I love crops I love plants i love uh, all of it. I love to see the seedlings come up out of the in the greenhouses. Uh, I love soil. I love to get my hands in the soil. Uh, I I love it. But anyway, so I watch those things uh, and there's there's an update every few days. But I watch uh, all of them and or those two shows. And um, and and I thought, huh, there's no language in these two guys. There's two guys in this one show. Uh, sunny farms in North Dakota and and uh, uh, there's no language there's no there's no f-bombs there's no uh, sketchy language per se there's no no uh, use of all the vernacular that we find so common in our culture. Uh, the other night I sat down to watch television I was in someone else's home uh, I was not in charge of the clicker and every I was telling the girls every third word that I heard was F. Um, and, and every word, every third word, and, and, and it basically led me to say, I, I don't want to watch this. Thank you anyway. But I watched the show and, and uh, the, this these, these farmers and there's no language coming out of their mouths. That's the first mark that tells me they might be Christians. And then when they tell the truth and they show a visible commitment to tell the truth and they're not fighting with each other, then I'm saying, surely they're Christians. And sure enough, they start talking about their church. Eventually, after I'd watched many different videos. There's another family, and I, I swear they're Baptist. I think they're Baptist. I think they go to a Baptist church. They're farmers, they're vegetable farmers, and it delights me to see their love of their family, their harmoniousness, their sympathy with one another, their brotherly love, and it leads me to the conclusion they've got to be believers. Believers. Maybe you've run into this too. You've seen people, your neighbors next door, and you think, they're so nice. I see the way that they interact together. I see the way they treat their children. They've got to be Christians. Well, that's what God intends for your life to preach. Your life is to preach to others and to show to others that surely they must come to the inevitable conclusion that this person, this family, these individuals, they're Christians. I see them go to church on Sundays, but it's more than that. They're kind. And they deal ethically with me. And they show love to their neighbors. Surely they're Christians. Love is a brother. It's a mark of Christianity. Compassion is another. Kind-heartedness as it as it is related in my um, in, in, in my uh, translation, having uh, literally having healthy intestinal or bowels, uh, intestinal health or love flowing from the bowels. You know what that's like. And of course, love within scripture, kind heartedness, tender heartedness. Uh, we, we know when we feel sympathy for someone or we feel deeply for another individual who is struggling, we feel it in our bowels. Uh, it's a feeling that immediately connects to our to our, our chest, our heart, our bowels, somewhere deep within us, we physically feel the sympathy and the mercy that we extend to them. Now this word compassion or, or kind-heartedness involves forgiveness. It involves understanding. It involves concern for other, another person's needs. God forgave you. It's extraordinary that God asks nothing from you or of you that one first he doesn't give us the ability and the capacity to perform, but also that he himself hasn't already shown us. It's true. Even last week and of the sermons that have been preached in the last few weeks about submission and about uh, in its various forms. In no way has God commanded us to act in a way that he himself is unwilling to act. Rather, over and over again, the motivation for our submission in our various ways, in various systems and cultures and organizations, is because Christ submitted to the Father. It's because Christ was made subject to the cross. It's because Jesus Christ submitted to our need for redemption and provided his mercy for us. We need to be honest about our weaknesses. We need to be kind hearted with one another. We need to honor humility. We are to walk in the last way that, that Peter identifies here, and humble in spirit. I think that's the hardest of all, isn't it? We are prone to pride. We are prone to exalt ourselves. We are prone to really want the approbation, the affirmation, the adoration, the admiration of our fellow man. We want to be admired. We want others to see our excellence. We want others to receive that we are deeply gifted persons with great skills, with a sharp mind, with with awesome beauty, with whatever the case may be. We want others to respect and admire us. I don't care who you are. You can't deny it. We all do enjoy a bit of admiration. We do want to put our best foot forward. We do want others to in some way appreciate Something about ourselves, because we, we, we want to be, we need to be, um, at the very least, recognized. It's endemic to our human condition. But if we're to have a humble mind, it means we have to forget about ourselves a little bit. To not talk about ourselves all the time. We have to place less importance on our own stories than we do on the stories of others. We need to be honest about our weaknesses. We can't be ashamed to ask for prayer. We confess our sins to one another. We stop boasting. The Bible says He opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And Jesus, as in all things, is our penultimate example of humility. He humbled Himself even to the point of death on a cross. I tell you this morning, if you're rejecting all of these traits and you're unwilling to do this, If you say, no, I'm unwilling to be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Won't do it. Or, Or at least in your own mind, you're saying, well, I am who I am. I'm going to be who I want to be. And all right, I'll make a cursory effort. Well, all you're really saying is you don't know Christ. All you're really saying is I've never experienced... Jesus Christ in such a way that I have seen that He humbled Himself even to the point of death, death on a cross for me. You see, because the believer takes that in and says, Now all my life must proclaim and display that man, that God-man, that perfect God-man who gave Himself for me. All my life is intended to display the excellence of my Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ, because I've experienced him, I've seen him, I know him and I know what he's done for me. Jesus clarified, forgive and it will be forgiven you. So we see that we must live with one another, but we also have to live with evil And verse nine is about that not returning evil. For evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead for you were called for this for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. God's intent is that you and I would inherit a blessing. Okay, that's God's intention and his intention in bringing it about is that we would live in the very face of the very gates of hell. Uh, I love where Jesus says that God, as it were, will build his church before the very gates of hell. truth is that the church in this world experiences the opposition of Satan. And the truth is that we will experience evil in our world as our brother Sergei is experiencing in the Ukraine right now. But you and I might experience evil even in the church community when we are doing all the above. Schopenhauer, the, Schopenhauer, a German philosopher, says he compared the human race to porcupines huddled together on a cold winter's night. He says, the colder it gets outside, the more we huddle together for warmth. But the closer we get to one another, the more we hurt one another with our sharp quills. And in the lonely night of earth's winter, eventually we begin to drift apart, wandering out on our own and freezing to death in our own loneliness. I think that's the case. I think that's an apt depiction But in the church, there we are, we're huddled together for warmth against the cold, and we are hurting one another with our sharp quills. We are at loggerheads, we are contending at times, maybe hurting one another, maybe saying something insensitive, a thought or, or, or a word or a phrase, or maybe we we're even in a bad mood or we we're experiencing some real difficulty, and we lashed out. What are we to do? How can we maintain the bond of unity and peace when we are prone to harming one another? Warmth and connection comes through forgiveness when it's threatened. And so we ought to be a people ready to forgive. Not just, as long as he comes to me, as long as she confesses her sin, I'm going to be willing to forgive. No. Rather, Paul writes to the church and says, look, to to, to the Philippians, uh, he says... Or, pardon me, to the church in Corinth, he says, look, it's better if you be defrauded than that you be dividing from one another and take each other to court. In other words, it's a better thing in the eyes of God that we endure and we forgive without asserting our rights. How could we do such a thing? I think we struggle to do that because we are not convinced that God sees and God will bring redress. I think that we're not convinced that God sees the evil committed against us, and so we've got to get the retribution that we deserve. I think there's something more incipiently evil. We believe ourselves to be sovereign, and we make of ourselves demigods over our own lives, and we believe that we are entitled to revenge. But that's not the case. Revenge belongs to the Lord. Justice is in God's hands, and he will make it right. We are obligated to forgive one another. We we need to forgive one another for the pokes that we receive. We are to hope in God for recompense, if in fact it's that important. God will balance the scales. We have to let go of that inner desire harbored within us that wishes punishment on the person that offended us. Have we not read the story of the unjust steward? The one who was forgiven an immense amount and then went over a picayune amount and enslaved his own fellow servant until he could pay his debt. What did the Lord do in that instance? He said, he took that evil wicked servant and said, I have forgiven you of so much. And you would enslave your own fellow servant over a minor amount. I will cast you into the lake of burning fire where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Don't we understand from the scriptures that if we seek retribution, we refuse to live harmoniously with the church. We refuse to be kind hearted or humble in spirit, sympathetic and brotherly that we have not experienced the forgiveness of God, that we are not believers and we are subject to God's wrath and curse. And if we have not seen Christ in all of his glory, if we have not experienced the compassion of God in the forgiveness of sins, then we are not a Christian. And we are in need deeply of seeing God's love in Christ. We need to let go of that inner... Desire that harbors wrongs committed against us, that is quick to forgive, that glories in forgiveness because we have been forgiven by God in Christ Jesus. What we experience, the redemption that has been accomplished for us, is, is to be our our complete and ongoing, total motivation in the christian life it 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 keeps giving dividends dear brothers and sisters it never ceases to motivate the believer so don't repay evil for evil many complain that there's a lot of political acrimony bitterness anger animosity hostility people can't sit in a room and talk and disagree over any issues at all Uh, we ought not to be like that here's a thought Stop placing a greater importance and priority in your life on politics. Weep over this. Ask the Lord to give you a greater burden for the lost. Ask the Lord to help you feel more deeply about the gospel of Jesus Christ and love of Jesus Christ and love for the church and your fellow brothers in Christ and for a harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble spirit than you do for your political perspectives. I'm not saying political perspectives are wrong, they are not. But when that becomes a greater identifying component of who we are, there's something wrong. In the end our motivation is found in this. We receive a blessing when we do this. God's approval is that we should that that all of this is all that should matter ultimately revenge loses out on god's blessing fails to take up at the calling to which god has called us what does it mean to be blessed of god well it means to order our responses to suffering to difficulty to evil even in such a way that we prioritize gospel dis- gospel witness over retribution we submit we're willing to sub- be subject to according to the Lord's command, an example because of Jesus, to even the unjust and the undeserving, so that ignorance would be cured and that the praise of God would result. Now, lastly and finally, yes, in summary, the third point is we are to live before the face of God in verses 10 through 12. The one who desires life to love and to see God, good days must keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's it's Psalm 34. End toto. It's Psalm 34. And it's interesting that The first itemization of David is the tongue, evil speech, bragging, gossip, slander, lying, rude speech, loose or worldly speech, using God's name in vain, all those things. And so many different other things that we are capable of, all things that are in contradiction to a harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind hearted, humble spirit. But Let's conclude. Let's summarize what Peter has said here. An obedient life comes from a heart transformed by grace. If your heart has been transformed by grace, if you've come to know Jesus Christ, then your life will be transformed by Him. God takes notice. God takes notice and God takes sides. He favors the meek. He favors the righteous. He hears only their prayers. Did you recognize that in the passage? The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. His ears attend to their prayer toward the righteous. You know, he doesn't hear the unrighteous. God doesn't listen to the prayers offered by those who have rejected the Son of God. God will not hear the prayers of those who have no interest in accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior. He hears only the prayers of those who have been made righteous righteous. In Christ and those made righteous in Christ will have a a life and fruit bearing life itself that displays the blessings of God. Maybe no one has ever heard you. Maybe no one takes any notice of you. But the Lord does. The Lord does. Refusing to engage in God's way results ultimately in unheard prayer. The God who closes up the heavens as if they are brass against you. But if if you have faith in Jesus Christ, if you are trusting in him, your prayers are heard. But it's more than that. It's not just that God is, well, yeah, I heard that. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. It means he's looking at you like a loved one who can't take his eyes off of you. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayers. It's like this. As I get a little bit older, I get a little less acute with my hearing. So sometimes I have to turn my head and I have to listen a little bit more, a little bit better in order to hear what some are saying, especially those who are extremely soft spoken. I have to turn my head. Well, it's, God is directing his gaze towards you who are his righteous people, all those accepted in his beloved son, and his ears are tuned to hear you. It's an extraordinary posture. It's an extraordinary posture that God wants us to see from Psalm 34, and Peter says is true of all those who are in Christ. That God is so bent on seeing you, there's nothing that occurs in your life that he, he hasn't observed And there's nothing you can pray and say unto him that he won't hear. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If you know your life to be one of practicing evil, if you have practiced evil, if you are practicing evil, If you are sinning against God and you continue to sin against God, God's face is against you. Now what this means is that God's face, his judgment, his harshness, his wrath, his holy anger is against you. That there is peace with God and there is justification with God through Christ Jesus. If you come and you confess your sins to him whose face is hard against you, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Would you be clean? Would you have the face, the eyes of the Father directed towards you? Would you have uh, the ears of our God bent towards you in such a way that he hears your every prayer? Come in faith to Jesus Christ. Come and be relieved of the effects of and the tyranny of sin, common experience, justification by believing and entrusting in Jesus Christ alone.